wait, what? W- what are we doing? The the what episode? The anti what? Oh my gosh, it's the anti gas episode. The episode where we're going to talk about staying slim and trim in our camera bag. Well, let's get to it. John, roll that intro. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Well, how you doing today, folks? Uh, it's James Lee here, and um, you know, kind of being, I guess, the second episode of 2023. Uh, you know, the gang and I, uh, we were all chatting about, um, geez, you know what if we did an anti-gas episode? What if we kept things simple? And, um, you know, how would that kind of go over? You know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? How can we best utilize limited budgets, limited gear, and still get the images that we want to achieve? So, John, I know you have been looking at this quite closely and have changed a lot of uh, your approach. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you uh, have approached kind of the anti-gas movement. Okay. And I think I just want to start off by saying I am not anti-collector far from it because it's, you know, it's because of collectors that these old cameras are being rescued from, you know, uh, attics and uh, damp garages and moldy basements and getting preserved and, uh, you know, and fixed up and used, you know, so they're basically, so thank collectors for preserving what is in a lot of cases, a finite resource. So I just wanted to, uh, to get that, that off, uh, off my chest. Yeah. So I think I mentioned in a recent episode, I've, I've been, uh, degassing pretty, uh, pretty severely, um, for, I think for a, a number of reasons, like I, uh, I've gotten rid of the Hasselblad. It now belongs to someone else. I still have a couple of lenses I'm trying to sell, uh, working on that. Um, and at this point, I'm probably not getting rid of much else because a lot of stuff I have is, you know, not not that high priced. It's uh, you know, like like some old Pentax gear, some of the lower end Nikon SLRs, like a know stuff that uh, yeah it'll sell but it's a pain because you know you've got to sh- you know you're dealing with the buyers and if you're shipping it out of town and dealing with Canada Post who are not my favorite people a lot of the time um, so what I'll probably end up doing is if there's stuff that I'm not using you know I just look for a trade or I'll trade stuff for consumables you know like uh, I was given um Oh, here's what. Have any of you heard of an SLR brand called ProMaster? I've heard the name before. Yeah, I think they're pretty low budget. Mm. Uh, like I thought, almost like a generic, you know, you probably find it in a Walmart way back in the day. Um, it's, you know, screw mount camera. I will never use it, but I'm, I'm not going to try to sell it because it was given to me. I got it in sort of one of these bung, uh, box of junk things. But I will wait um, for the opportunity to give it to someone because, you know, hopefully, you know, you know, here, the first one's free kid. Here's a gateway drug and, uh, and get going that way. 
And what I'm just trying to do, of course, is focus on using the the gear I have. And I think I've told this story before when I got my first, excuse me, when I got my first SLR, Yashica TL Electro in 1977 with, with uh, a loan from my parents. It came with one lens, a 50 millimeter F1.9 Yashinon. I couldn't afford any other lenses for two, two and a half years. So I got used to using one camera, one lens, and I really knew how that 50 millimeter worked. You know, you just, uh, you under, you start to instinctively understand the angles, how it sees things. And I think that's a pretty good discipline that I would recommend anyone, even, especially if they're starting out, you know, at least for a few months, stick with one lens. Don't, uh, you don't have to get, you know, a, uh, a dozen lenses right away or get something like, you know, a 28 to 200 uh, zoom. I think that slows you down. And if you have an embarrassment of riches, you're never going to really focus, pardon the pun, or, or learn the gear. And I think there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of gear that they really haven't learned all that well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think it's, uh, it's important to, uh, if you're going to learn something, to kind of dive in head first, you know, with both feet. And, it, and it's difficult to do that if you've got your attention sort of spread on, you know, 20, 30 different cameras, especially if you're just getting started. Uh, yeah. it, whether or not it's film photography or digital photography, anything that you do. But photography, for, photography in particular, where the equipment is... Um, uh, it's so integrated into the process that, you know, if you're, if you're kind of spread a little thin, um, it can be very, very challenging. Absolutely. I remember, uh, oh, about 10 years ago, my wife asked me how many cameras I had and she was not impressed when I couldn't answer without doing research. <laughs> so I would, I would say I have maybe a third of the cameras today that I had 10 years ago. Mm. That, that's incredible. Now, speaking about a family of uh, camera collectors, um, I, I don't think there's uh, anyone here guiltier than Mr. Bill Smith uh, about having a gigantic uh, camera collection uh, that keeps on growing. So, Bill, tell us about how you your collection got to be where it is today and what your thoughts might be on um, how, if you chose to do so how you would approach slimming down and just focusing on a smaller set of gear oh boy that's a tough one um yeah a guilty is charged i have a large collection and again i'm sort of at that point where i'm actually looking at some point now it's really contingent on some family members if they decide to take up photography then i can rehome my Pentax came out fleet. I don't shoot with it. And I'm sort of reaching a point going, well, why do I still have this? And I think it sort of comes down to, I think when a lot of people get into camera collecting, they kind of just go absolutely nuts and then realize, okay, I've got all this weird stuff across multiple formats. And I kind of just looked at it going, stick to certain lens mounts. It's particularly if you're going to use the stuff that way, you're not going, you're, you're, 
you're you're sort of struggling because you got to buy a whole set of lenses for each system you buy. So it's sort of like if you do get into say collecting, focus on a brand or two, and then just go deep on that instead of like eight or nine brands, and then you've got to find all sorts of weird stuff to go with it. Uh, in terms of sort of slimming down, I'm probably the last guy you probably want to talk to at the moment. Although, who knows if I if I wind up moving in the future, I may have to part company with a little bit of my collection, the stuff that doesn't get used as much, and I'll be painful. But you know, it's the way it is. It's um, but again, it's sort of if I'm looking at something, I'm more focusing on. Yeah, it's lenses, it's film, and that's what I'm focusing on investments this year. Uh, a camera body, it's sort of to the point saying, well, do I really, really need it? Nah, nah, I got enough. And that's, it's sort of like holding fast to what you got. Now, if you're going out on a photo walk, you know, I was out yesterday with the Toronto Film Shooters and... Uh, we were in Toronto's West End and I basically ran with a three lens kit, but of that, I only used two lenses, 35 and the 105. And of the most of it, I was using the 35 F2. And we'll see, I haven't processed the film yet, but you know, it comes down to it, your decision-making is reduced. It's like, how can you make like you can just go out with a nifty 50, which I love doing and just go out and you just look for the shots that will fit that lens. You can always use the handy dandy um, foot zoom as well. Exactly. Provided you're nowhere near a cliff or yeah. an alligator pit. Which pit. You know, generally um, I think in, in shooting in Toronto, you're really just looking out for wayward street cars. That's about it. I think. And someone driving a white Lexus crossover. <laughs> Distracted motorists. And we'll leave it at that. So, yeah, it's more holding pat with what I got. I'm not really expanding further. It's sort of, yeah. And it's sort of like something kind of like as an exercise. What would I kind of thin down if I if I was moving to a smaller space? And yeah, it's it's some tough decisions ought to be made, but I know what I'm, I definitely will keep. But I also know that, yeah, there's maybe one or two brands that may go on the chart, you know, may get rehomed. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The ones I'm just not using enough or, and they're kind of take up a lot of space. <laughs> yeah. It can be hard to uh, look at your functional shelf Queens uh, all day and, and, watch them collect dust right so yeah. yeah especially when you know they do take amazing photos very true and that's the tough part so i know it, i'm probably not as much help uh and again it's more like the cautionary table tale for those who are building a collection it's like focus on just one or two brands in each given film format your sanity, the sanity and your and organization will be so much easier. <laughs> 
Definitely. Now, talking about amazing photos, and um, even though it is kind of anti-gas, but building a new collection. Now, I know Jess is venturing into uh, a new format for her, um, and she is starting to collect a few pieces uh, in the large format arena. So, Jess, maybe can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely not really anti-gas in that point, because I started buying bags or film holders, I should say, um, and lenses and whatnot, I had to start looking at dark claws, I have to get a new bag, I have to get a new tripod, like all kinds of things go into shooting with a new format. Uh, and it's not just lenses, bodies, stuff like that. And the film don't e- don't even get me started on the price of four by five film. And I'm just lucky it's four by five and not eight by 10 because holy crap. Um, but it did start getting me thinking a little bit about starting to thin out the herd. Um, there were actually two cameras that really kind of solidified that for me this year. So the first one was getting the Intrepid. Um, being able to get started in 4 by 5 was something that I've wanted to do for a really long time, but was scared of the startup cost. Um, and probably had I started thinning the herd a little bit earlier, I might have gotten into 4 by 5 even earlier than I actually did. But the other camera that also kind of gave me, you know, is willing, like giving me the the desire to finally pump the brakes on buying cameras is actually the Rolleiflex 2.8 that Jody gave me for my birthday. Um, that camera is just so fantastically well-made that it's, it's just wonderful. Uh, now I have collected quite a bit over the years. My very first like serious camera I bought myself was my RB67 and I've collected a few lenses, film backs and all that along the way. And my first serious SLR was my Canon F1. And now those two are my absolute workhorse cameras. Those are the cameras that I know like the back of my hand. So when Bill was saying get invested in like one or two systems, I absolutely agree with that because now I do have a lot of glass, uh, FD glass for the Canon. And I also have a few options for the Mamiya and, you know, a few more that I'd like to buy eventually. Um, But, you know, getting used to those two formats and getting used to those two cameras, like I can go out and do anything with them. I could perform well at any possible shoot I would have to do because I know those cameras so well. And that is also the same advice I would give to anyone starting out is pick one camera, one lens and spend, you know, at least six months, like John said, or even up to a year, just learning that one system until you've got that down packed. And then you start looking around. Now it can be a little hard as a beginner to look around. Like for me, even I do feel the pressure a little bit being on YouTube um, because everyone's using all these super awesome cameras. And I'm like, well, I can't afford that. And so you kind of feel like you're, you know, playing, keeping up with the Joneses a lot. And so that's where gas can kind of come in a lot. And I am also guilty of this. I did start adding to my collection because I felt like these were all cameras I needed to have. I needed to own them. I wanted to own every single camera in the world, which is not completely true. But I mean, I was trying. I was trying really hard. But what I've realized now is that I actually have specific systems that I will never, ever sell and some sentimental cameras that I will always keep. But I have a lot of extra stuff that I really don't need. And now with, you know, film prices going up, camera prices are still kind of fluctuating. And also I have so many, 
usable bodies that I'm not going to use, why not put those into the hands of people who are actually going to use them while they do still work? And then Mm -hmm. I get the money so I can buy more four by five film or, you know, just kind of hone in on the accessories that I do want to get. Like I mentioned, I'd like to buy a couple more, you know, RB lenses. And I have the Mamiya M64-5000S and I want to get the 80 millimeter 2.8 lens. That's the only lens I want for that system. So what I'm also looking at is saying like, okay, the cameras that I do want to keep, how can I make each one usable for a specific purpose? So like the M645, I have a 220 insert. So I, and I have a little stash of 220 film. So that could become my 220 camera. My RB and my F1 will always be my workhorses. My Intrepid is brand new to me. So I'm still learning how to work all of that into, into what I do. Um, and recently I've really discovered a love for Holga, but that also has its own specific purpose. Cause I mean, let's face it, it is a really crappy camera <laughs> and you can only get results, really good results out of it sometimes. <laughs> so that's, yeah, you know, so it's like, that's the surprise camera. That's the, I'm maybe a little stuck and I just want to play around with something and see what I get. So each camera actually kind of has a bit of a purpose. If I kind of thin out the rest of the herd, like, You know, thrift store shopping was a really big thing, especially in Quebec. We still actually had a lot of um, secondhand cameras in our thrift stores a lot longer than the rest of the country. It seemed like Ontario and B.C., like the shelves were empty very early on. But Quebec, we still had quite a few. So like I picked up a Topcon for $40. I picked up I don't even know how many point and shoots, even like Mewtwo's for $5 or less. So I've got a lot of these things sitting around that I'm like, you know what? I'm just never going to use them. Why hold on to them while they're still actually working, put them into the hands of people who can use them and let them enjoy them. And I can enjoy what I have. I think that is a very one noble approach. Absolutely. Uh, And yeah, I really like the idea of, you know, kind of paying it forward, getting more people into the film community, seeing what it's all about, you know, without having to make a huge financial commitment just to realize, hey, this isn't for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Or as John, you know, eloquently put it, here's your gateway drug now, go and get broke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've all we've all been beneficiaries of generosity uh, from other people. In fact, you know, from people on this call. Uh, So why shouldn't we keep it going? Exactly. Now, for those of you um, who might be new to the um, podcast or been hiding under a rock, um, uh, you know, Alex is kind of in a, in a bit of a contradictory stage. We have a man here who, who spends a lot of his free time doing camera reviews, film reviews, developer reviews, lens reviews, reviews on reviews, uh, and of course has had um, probably one of the most important reasons to um, trim down his, his <laughs> collection. Uh, so Alex, tell us how you've been balancing this contradiction in collection, sort of, uh, if you will. Well, um, it's a little bit of what Bill said. It's you, you focus on the systems you like and you get along with. Um, and there, there is still that certain thrill you get from from buying something new, but you don't always need a new camera. Maybe you can buy something that will help improve an existing system. So 
Probably the best way to make an older camera seem new is once you've gotten to know it, had that one lens, really gotten to understand the camera's quirks, buy a new lens. <laughs> just just go out and go like, okay, well, you know what? I really want to, I really like shooting this style. So I'm going to buy, so I really like doing portraits. I want to expand on doing that. So I'm going to buy a 105 millimeter lens for my Nikon system. I'm going to buy an 85 millimeter lens for my Minolta system or my Canon system or what have you. Um, oftentimes some lenses can be, you can, you can buy an older version of a lens and you can get it a little bit cheaper than say the latest and greatest. So especially within my Nikon uh, manual focus system, I have a mixed bag of both AIS and AI lenses because I can buy the AI lenses a little bit cheaper. And yeah, I don't have the 28 millimeter f2.8, but the 28 millimeter 3.5 is a lot better because it doesn't have that vignetting and fall off when you shoot it wide open. And you don't need 2.8 for a 28. 3.5 will do just fine in low light situations because you have that 28 millimeter view. You put everything on a flat plane, you open it up 3.5 and you're good. Um, I, I expanded my autofocus system by buying the second generation 24 and 28 millimeter lenses. They're not the D types, but I don't shoot flash though. Why do I need that? Um, and again, it's, it's just a matter of getting in, in touch with people and, making trades like maybe you're not using one camera and another person is using something that you want and they're and it's like well hey why don't we why don't we just swap and then it's then it's mutually beneficial and as james said i i do a lot of reviews and um it can get boring to just shoot all my film reviews on the maxim nine so yeah i do i do maintain a handful of systems um, again, I have my Mamiya M645 system, which I just have four lenses for. I'm pretty happy with where that system is. So it will, it will sit and it will be happy the way it is. Um, I, I only have a couple of real lenses that I really want for my Canon EOS and my Nikon system still. So once, once they're done, I'll be happy. And a little bit of project management coming through here, but if you are looking at getting into a system, know where your done is. Mm. Define your done mm. and work towards it. And you don't have to get done in like your first two, three years of using it. Spread it out over years. Like mm. take it over 10 years, take it over 15 years. Right. Um, when it comes to camera bodies, have two, right? If one breaks, you have a backup until you can buy that one you really like again. Because as long as your lens systems are usable, you'll use them. Mm. And yeah, and don't try to get everything of one system and, and don't hoard, mm -hmm. right? I, I see all these things and you know what? If it makes you happy, go with it. But it's the people who have every color prism finder for the Nikon F or the Nikon F2. Like, 
you don't need a black and a chrome unmetered finder. You just need one. Well, it's like that when I see some Leica collectors who have like about six, seven M3s, and I'm like, really? Yeah. Okay, maybe I understand getting a double stroke and a single stroke from the 60s, but after that, it's kind of like, Share some love. It's the same thing with Rolly flexes. It's like, why are you sitting on like? Again, granted, I'm probably the worst example because I have a Series E and a Series F seventy five three five. But it's when you, it's when you see people have like almost a dozen of them, and it's like, holy crap! <laughs> well, I think- sad. I didn't buy mine like five years ago when it was like nine hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Alex, I was going to just maybe uh, add on to your your idea about you know what you're spending your money on, and not always have doesn't always have to be a new camera. It doesn't even have to be a new lens. I, I know there are pe- a lot of people out there who just never seem to use filters. You know, buy a red filter, yeah. buy uh, an appropriate roll of film, and you can get a whole new look and have perhaps fun. a whole new inspiration for not an awful lot of money. So there are all kinds of cheap accessories mm-hmm. that can give you new ideas. Buy a Don't flash, learn how to use that. Exactly. Yeah, get an uh, IR filter as well. There's try get a green filter, get a yellow filter. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. No, I really yeah. like your point about figure out what done is for you. Mm. You know, and I think, you know, for, for myself, I started, I mean, I, my collection's gone up and down over the years and I've had a lot of high-end gear in my collection. So I've had a lot of high-priced, um, you know, shelf queens that were functional and in, you know, pristine shape and, you know, sitting there, you know, certainly appreciating and value just basically due to scarcity that I guess I was somewhat indirectly or perhaps directly contributing to. But, you know, recently I said, um, you know, if I'm not going to be using this gear, I don't want to have it sitting there. Uh, And much like Jess, I want to, you know, sell it, invest the money somewhere else um, in in film photography or some other hobby, um, you know, and uh, and let someone else get the true enjoyment out of that piece of equipment that, you know, I'm really not doing it justice, you know. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of it starts with, um, uh, you know, figuring out what you want and then wanting what you have. Mm. And, you know, and a, a lot of it is, you know, there's certainly the collector mindset, which I think is different than the shooter mindset. And then, of course, there's a combination of the two in varying amounts that's different for everyone. So I don't think we, you know, just just a caveat, we certainly are not, you know, talking about this today to you know, impose our viewpoints on how people should collect or not collect or buy their camera gear. That's definitely not, not do what makes you happy. Absolutely. You know, I think, yeah. And I think it's, it's important. Step one, let's just look at it, you know, collection, collecting aside, whatever your motivation is for collecting, have at it, go nuts. Do you want 250, you know, M6s, 125 M7s? Hey, and you have the, 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 the financial wherewithal to, to accomplish that. I will be very, very jealous of you, but certainly, you know, very, very, um, and well, I guess I'll be extra jealous of you. And, uh, you know, but hey, if that makes you happy, that's really cool. Good for you. And you want to post those photos on the internet and that makes you feel good. Hey, knock yourself out, but no problem there. Um, 
But if you take sort of a photographer's and a shooter's mindset and you're just, say, getting into exploring film photography or something in your life has changed that is motivating you to, you know, have a little bit more sharper focus on on this, on your kit and maybe have it a little bit more purpose-driven than kind of just, you know, sitting on the shelf sort of, well, you know, the wind's blowing this way today. I, I'll use this body and this this gear or whatever. I think, you know, ask yourself, what is it that I want to shoot? Which is, I know is a loaded and a very open-ended, broad, broad-based question. But, you know, it's, you know, am I going to be a portrait shooter? Am I going to be a landscape shooter? Am I going to shoot architecture? What format do I like? Uh, a lot of us, you know, if not all of us have learned in the 135 format uh, and have gone to medium format and then eventually to large format. And then, of course, ultra large format after that. Uh, a lot of people have followed that that continuum. And, and that, hey, that's great if it works for you. But some folks here, like I know Bill, for example, is, is an avid 135 shooter. He occasionally shoots medium format, but is not a big fan of, uh, of large format. And I think John is quite similar as well. Uh, you know, and Alex, Jess and I, we, you know, we like some of the bigger negatives and that sort of thing. Myself, I tend to gravitate towards medium format. Um, I, you know, when I was working professionally, I was a, a, a portrait shooter most of the time. So, you know, those lenses, those, you know, portrait focal lengths, if you will, systems um, more aligned with portrait and people photography were where I invested my money. As I got back into film photography and sort of back to my roots, there, I, there was certainly a gap, a hole that I wanted to fill, which was the nostalgia hole, if you want, or nostalgia gap. And that was, you know, the camera that you had as a kid or that you lusted after as a kid that you could never afford. Um, you know, when, when I was 12 years old, uh, I, you know, a $650, um, you know, F3 or whatever it was in 1981 um, was something beyond my reach. You know, and then to be able to buy that in today's market, well, not today's market, but say, you know, five to six years ago's market, um, you you saw the price and you're like, OK, I'll take six. Give me I'll buy them by the dozen. And then, you know, as though that, as that goes on and you get in more involved in, in the community and, you know, you set up a YouTube channel, you get involved in podcasting, you want to talk about equipment and share, you know, all of these new and exciting um uh, experiences that you're having, it can get out of hand really, really quickly. Um, and I think all of us on this on this podcast have probably dealt with that in one form of the other to different degrees of severity, for sure. Um, but I think, you know, for the average person that is looking at making this change, ask yourself, what is it that you want to do with this equipment? Are you happy with a single format? two formats, three formats, four, what, whatever it is. But then I would, you know, as everyone has said, and I, I, and I agree is, you know, figure out a system, systematic approach to that. So can I get a, a 135 system camera where I don't have to change everything? I can get a particular lens. I can get, you know, a flash unit, whatever it is, a medium format camera. You know, do I, I, do I go with the system that, you know, I'm happy with, you know, am I used to like a six, four, five or like a three, two kind of 
uh, aspect ratio or do I want to go square and stay square? Because, you know, if you go square, it's, it's a different approach to composition. And if you're going to stay in the square format, that's something you have to think about. If you're going to stay in those rectangular aspect ratios, whether or not it's eight by 10 or two by three or, you know, whatever that might be, then, you know, do I want the look and feel of an SLR body? Would a Pentax 67 medium format system make sense to me? A Mamiya 7 system, like something like that, makes sense to me. Um, you know, rather than going and buying, you know, and I think where you, you got to be careful is, you know, you'll see like, I don't know, like, um, uh, you know, a, a cheap, uh, TLR, like a seagull or something, you know, like I want to get into to TLRs, then all of a sudden you've amassed all of these low end crappy cameras. And then, you know, you've got, you know, 10 of them sitting on your shelf there. And then all of a sudden comes that Roly Flex 2.8E you've been lusting after, but you've spent all your money on this other crap. And then you're like, oh, I should have just saved my money because I want this, you know? So you gotta, you gotta really think ahead. I think, uh, and, you know, and it also goes hand in hand with film as well. Uh, you need to learn a particular film stock. I recommend staying away from color when you are just learning. You're going to learn a lot more shooting black and white because it's black and white is going to teach you how to how to read and see tonality in your images as opposed to masking that with vibrant colors. Not that vibrant colors are bad, just from a learning approach. I really recommend black and white first. Learn to see in tones, learn photographic values, those things. That's going to help you down the road. And once you learn the basics of that system, a lot of those skills are transferable, regardless of whatever system, you know, lies down the road. And it's very difficult to do that if you're constantly distracted by, oh, this new film, that new film, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm not saying not to try those new films. Go buy them, try them, have fun with them. But when you're focused on learning and mastering something, stick to that one film, stick to that one developer combo, your go-to, you know, your your where your money shots live and where, you know, the stuff that you're going to be proud of and be depending on for your own personal growth, whether or not that's financial or just personal. I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense to uh, just keep it really, really simple and don't, you know, you don't need to, you know, mimic what you know, the folks on the podcast are doing or the YouTube channels, hey, they're doing that for a different purpose, right? You know, and, and there's, of course, we need that in our industry and certainly not being critical of that at all. You know, it's don't, that is not the same as learning photography or learning the craft. Mm. It's two different things. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of my, my take on it. I have a couple questions for, you know, the group here that I think we can kind of approach in a round table fashion. And the number one would be, where do you think somebody getting started? What would be the most economical avenue? Where should they go and look for an entry level system? Um, what, to, what to buy or where to go? Both. Both. Um, where to go? I would definitely oh. find a, a good um, brick and mortar camera store first and first and foremost um so for our area i would highly recommend burlington camera 
because every single staff person there knows what they're talking about. And almost every single staff person there is a photographer themselves. Um, as for something to buy, I would probably say start with a 35 millimeter SLR. Um, look at if you are an existing digital shooter and have a digital SLR, buy something that has um, that has a lens mount that will work with any existing lenses. So if you are a Canon EOS shooter and have a bunch of regular EF, not EFS lenses, that is EF lenses, buy yourself a cheap Canon Rebel and go nuts. You you don't need to go with a mechanical camera that will, you, you will be going into a whole new system. Um, if you're a Nikon shooter, you can go with something like an F65, an F80. Those are super cheap these days and they'll work with any AF lenses you have and you're good to go. Um, you don't need to buy a Pentax K1000. You don't need to buy a Canon FTB. You don't have to buy a Nikon F, F2, FE, FM. You don't need that. You want to focus on knowing if you actually like to shoot film. And like James says, buy yourself um, a few rolls of Kentmere, um, Kentmere 400, Kentmere 100, and get it lab developed first. See see if you like it. And if you don't, you're not, you haven't put out money to buy this super expensive camera because that's what the people on the YouTube told me to buy. <laughs> I echo Alex. Like again, if you're like I have friends who are digital shooters and they kind of, you know, over every once in a while, like, hey, I'm pondering this. I just say, well, if you're shooting, for example, and again, this is back when before mirrorless became a really big thing. I just said, well, you know, um, if they're shooting something like a D850, I said, well, you got some money, uh, an Nikon F100, you can use your G glass, no problem. And um, if it's not your cup of tea, you can sell the F100 and get what you paid for it. <laughs> You're trading dollars for dollars and yet it's, it's enough camera. If you're an experienced shooter with, a, say, an 850, something like an, N, an F65 or an F80, it may be like going down to a tricycle when it's more like, okay, the F100, it's enough functionality that they can push themselves a wee bit, but they're not in over their – they're not feeling like – it's sort of like going from a 747 down to a Cessna just because you're – learning to fly slightly differently. And it's, it's just sort of like you're testing out a new medium. But again, I totally agree. Just getting Katmere 400 and getting it lab processed to start. Like you don't have to buy all the goodies to learn how to develop. That's Do that at year three. <laughs> well, I'm like? actually going to disagree a little bit here and <laughs> bring in some controversy. Um I personally absolutely love the K1000. I think it's the perfect camera to start on because it's manual. I think that to learn the way that the exposure triangle works, it is absolutely best on a fully manual camera. Because when I was starting out, I had, um, I forget what it's called, 
Nikon F401S or something like that. And so I couldn't Ooh. actually change the ISO. And that was really frustrating for me because I was learning about pushing and pulling film and all that stuff because we were also doing darkroom, like learning how to develop and, and all that. And I couldn't actually do it. And that was really frustrating for me. Uh, I actually didn't even understand what the concept really was of pushing and pulling film until much later after I was out of school. And a K1000 is just so bare bones. Like there's no bells, there's no whistles. It's a machine. It's built like a tank. It's not that heavy, but you know, it's heavy enough that it's not going to just break. It's not going to shatter to pieces and they're not that expensive. They have gone up recently because there is a bit of like a cult fanaticism with them, probably from people like me who love them so much, um, but they are really fantastic cameras. So for me personally, I would suggest sticking with a fully manual camera when you're first starting out. And I do echo Alex, though, when I say go to a brick and mortar store, not only will those be clean, they'll be CLA, they'll be ready to go. You might spend a little extra, but then you don't need to worry about light leaks and all that other stuff that can come with buying a camera from Joe Blow down the street. And most of those places will give you a 30-day warranty. So absolutely. Storage. And we'll probably show you how to use it also. And 100%. just as FYI, I love the K1000. I own one. <laughs> I have multiple lenses for it. And it is never leaving, even though I don't use it anymore. And I really do need to get it CLA'd because it will be passed on to at least one member of my family. I'm going to back up Jess when it comes to mechanical cameras. In fact, I'll even go one step further that if you're really looking bare bones, there are cameras out there like uh, the, the spot, the, uh, the Pentax Spotmatic line. You see a lot of those where everything works except the meter and you can get them dirt cheap or well, at least relatively dirt cheap, even dirt's expensive these days. And uh, you know, you can use an external meter or you can even just use an app on uh, on your smartphone and really save money. And now for something truly radical, the way to save the most money is uh, at least if you're in a city that is like a strong film shooter community, like Toronto, you know, Montreal, the, the big centers, cultivate some connections there. And I'm willing to bet that if you go on a photo walk, someone will lend you a camera to try. And, you know, you know, um, if, if they, if they trust you, they might not lend you their, uh, they're they're like a m3 perhaps but they might you know bring along a pentax or a nikomat or something like that and show you how it works and you know you can maybe shoot a roll that day um get it developed and see if 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 you're into it if you like it and if it's not your thing then you're basically out or the develop the cost of a roll of film so mm. you don't all the first step does not always have to be pulling out the credit card true that's true no definitely not mm. well you know sitting in the moderator hot seat today i'm going to take the political stance and and, and talk about the merits of both of your perspectives so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna take the uh the the uh dare i say the trudeau um approach here so i think now per i gotta say personally i lean towards more the manual approach and the foundational learning of the basics of photography absolutely but i think if you are motivated just by getting out there and shooting and your your motivation is just i want to take cool pictures i don't want to learn about you know this, that, and the other thing. I don't want to learn about pushing and pulling and underexposing and overexposing. I want to kind of let the camera 
do a lot of that for me. Not, not that the camera will always be successful at doing that, but let's say that's your approach. Right. Um, and you know, and I, and I think to go along with that approach, you're taking your film to a lab 100% of the time because they are going to be in the best position to give you usable negatives or scans from crappy negatives that you've created. So I think if you're, if that's your motivation, yeah, a, you know, a, a, an old, a 90s plastic Nikon or Canon body, um, Pentax body, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Have fun. Enjoy it. Um, at some point, you'll probably, uh, you know, if you're like the re- anything like the rest of us, I think at some point you will be like, I want to do more. So you might be taking a step back into the the world of the, you know, the K1000, um, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, I if you can find one, I think the best of both worlds would be like a Minolta X370 and X700, something in that category that kind of gives you the automatic and manual. Um, XGM. XGM. That's what I learned on in in high school. I had an XGM. And, uh, you know, again, why is there one on my shelf? Because I had it when I was a kid, you know, like, I mean, there's, there's always going to be that, you know, that, that nostalgia around around uh, doing that. Now, uh, one more question. Starting out, lab or no lab? Do it yourself or lab? I would say if you're just starting out, um, even if you're starting with black and white, the first time, give your give yourself every chance to succeed. And like, I, I'd hate to have go out, you know, shoot. Uh, you know, shoot the roll. Everything's beautiful. Then you get home, and you're 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 new in the dark room. You you didn't load the reel right, or you mixed up the fixer and the developer. Oh, yeah, uh, and that could leave a real sour taste in your mouth. So yeah. you don't have to do it all the first time. Let no, the experts don't. help you. And I'll I'll go a step further. You don't have to develop your own film. You can enjoy film photography and not touch chemicals once that just might not be your thing. You, you may not want to learn all that. You may not want to invest in the time it takes to develop film, the chemistry, the equipment, the timer, this, that, everything else. You may just like the simple act of going out there with a camera, putting a roll of film, shooting it and letting somebody else do it. A lot of the pros did. They had dedicated labs that they would simply send their film to and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't and like robert kappa's famous role that uh, the his guy screwed up and they were all foggy and everything but those photos are, are that, super that didn't actually happen. yes that's possible the... too that's very possible too yeah. but those photos are so iconic they're still shared everywhere Absolutely. all around the world and, and in photo books i i keep a contacts rangefinder even though i'm an slr guy I keep a contacts rangefinder because of Robert Kappa, and I have two lenses for it, both of them 50 millimeters. Would I love to add more? Absolutely. Would I use it more because of that? No. So why would I do that? <laughs> I, I agree with the lab thing, though, for sure. Um, I, I've, so I'm kind of the wrong person, in a sense, to ask, and the right person at the same time, because I'm such a control freak that I need to develop my own black and white myself. Um, Mm. I need to know that if any mistake is made, it was all down to me and no one else's mistakes. Um, But when it comes to color, 
I was supposed to learn how to do my own C41 with my four by five sheets. I ha- I'm all set up. I even have the chemicals and I chickened out and dropped them off at the lab because I said, nope, not touching this right now. I'm not in the right headspace and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so color, I still actually have it done at a lab for me because I'm just not there yet to start doing my own C41, having all the extra bottles and all that stuff. But black and white for me personally, that's harder to drop off at a lab. I have done it um, and I've liked my results. So I would still suggest a lab for people who are first starting out. But if you are interested in learning, then definitely take the plunge with black and white because it's just so easy to do. Absolutely. And you know what? Color film is just as easy as black and white. I can do it. I can do it well, but I hate it because it's boring. Like it's you, you only have color developer, like you have your ECN2 developer, you have your E6 developer, and you have your C41 developer. You can load up Portra 400, where you've shot a third of the roll at 200, a third of the roll at 400, and a third of the roll at 800. You can pop in your roll of Santa Color 100, Portra 160, Ektar 100, stick it in a big thing, do it all at once, done. One time, one process. It's boring. <laughs> because it's that's so the fun of black and white boring. is yeah. that there's so many different kinds of developers. There's so many different ways to get the look. And that's one thing, too, about the whole gas thing that I think a lot of people forget is that it's not the camera that makes the photographer. Absolutely, It's the person behind the camera. It's exactly. your vision. It's your eye. It's the way yeah. you want to process everything. So. You know, sometimes it comes from using filters. Sometimes it comes from using different lenses. Sometimes it comes from different developers. But at the end of the day, you can create absolutely fantastic work on crappy cameras like Holga's. And you can create fantastic work on Rolleiflexes or Mamiya's or Chamonix or any of it. But what really matters is that you love your camera. You love the process. And you are putting your heart and soul behind every single image that you put out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think, and, and to me, like that one of those things is, is that's why I really think black and white is where you learn more artistic craft than mm-hmm. color, because you know, we have a billion shades of gray in the world and tonality and that sort of thing. And not that you don't have tonality in, in color you do, but at some point that tonality you change it enough, it changes the hue and becomes kind of nonsensical. And I, hey, if that's what you're after, great. But for me, and I'm just my own personal view, photography still has to maintain an element of realism to be considered photography, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't do these outlandish things and still call it photography, in my opinion. Uh, and not just, and certainly not a criticism on the quality or artistic value of it, but it starts becoming a different medium, I think, at some point when you get into color, you know, you change the tonality of red, then it becomes orange or yellow or purple. Like it's not, it's no longer red. It's no longer the color red. So um, yeah, I, I really think there's, there's, there's a lot to be said in some of the more pure elements of the art and focusing on those and expanding what you can do creatively with those particular elements of design when you're when you're making an image now as we were talking 
I did think of one more question, which might be kind of counterintuitive. So here's my question. And I ask, you know, be as less or as least biased as you can, considering we are all on social media. We've all been podcasting for a number of years and we've all seen an explosion of people on social media, podcasting, YouTube channels, you name it, who are out there giving advice. Now, how would you recommend somebody, you know, that is looking for advice on how to do something? What would be some of the things, the checks and balances you would tell someone before you accept advice or go seeking advice on the internet or from a podcast from someone, what do you think would be a prerequisite to making sure that that's really good advice? If I'm going to send somebody in a particular direction, like say somebody's wanting to learn how to process black and white film on their own for the first time, you want to go to somebody who knows how to explain I kind of coined it from what, you know, my day job, explain it. So uncle Ed understands. And generally if somebody's looking to go deeper into say black and white processing or even really into the deep end or the middle of the Atlantic printing, I just say, go to the Ilford photo, photo channel on YouTube and they will walk you through it. Cause again, it's, a, it's the manufacturer, but B, it's also in their best interest to show you how to use it and get an amazing result and explain it in simple language so it's not going to sail over your head. And that's the important thing. I'm going to throw something in, uh, especially for like black and white, where let's say, you know, the from a high level, the process has been pretty stable over a few decades. Don't discount checking out some of the classic books that have been written exactly. like the, the Ansel Adams stuff where there's a crowd talking yesterday on the photo walk with someone. There's a guy from the seventies, David Vestal, who was well known as a photographic craftsman in black and white. Um, you know, check out your library. Like the thing is, yeah, anyone can, uh, you know, throw a post up on social media and it can be completely inane because it's so easy to throw anything up whereas it uh back then at least it cost serious money to put a book together and to get a publisher to take a chance on you so don't don't discount traditional publishing i'm going to put my tongue firmly in my cheek if they talk all about shooting quarter 400 in their canon ae1 program ignore everything they say <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Amen. But my real answer is look at the person. Do they have passion? Do they love what they do? Because if they love what they do, they will not steer you wrong. Yeah. So if I if someone says, I want to learn how to shoot landscapes, I'm going to point them at Jess Hobbs. Oh, thank you. If someone wants to learn how to shoot portraits, they're going to James Lee. If they want to learn how to collect every single Nick or Matt under the sun, they're going to bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you really want to get a holistic view of the person. And, yeah, agreed. And you, and honestly, 
if someone comes to me for advice and I know I can't give it to them, I know enough people personally, and I know their skills and what they can and cannot do. I know when to go, look, I don't know, but I know someone who does. And that's the real test. If a person Mm -hmm. says, I'm really sorry, right? It would be the same thing. If someone wanted to learn how to do alt processing or alt prints, I'd point them at Bill Schwab or Matt Mirage. People who, (laughs) some of the people who I've learned from, like Mm -hmm. a lot of my large format stuff, I've learned from Matt Mirage. Um, Just how to be a really cool dude and run a really awesome photo event. Well, that's Bill Schwab. So, yeah. Mm. I think it's so true. And I, I equate it to shopping for a professional photographer. And I think for all of the examples that you've all mentioned, every single person that you would recommend has one thing in common, a real portfolio. See hmm. their work. Because if they can't do what they talk about, then they don't know what they're talking about. They're talk. They're telling someone else's story. They're not telling their own story. And you know, this this is something that has you know, kind of motivated motivated me to kind of step back from a lot of these um, podcast Facebook pages and things like that. Because um, and I'm not going to single out or mention anyone in particular. Just generally speaking, um, I see questions being asked, and and. And I feel bad for the person that's asking the questions because the the answers being given are complete horse pocky. Like it's just it it, it it okay. You got lucky, and now you're giving advice. You've been shooting film for a whole year, uh, and you know you've probably been you know adjusting the ever living snot out of your shitty negatives. Um, you know to put something at seventy two DPI on the internet. I don't know. I think it's really a, it's a slippery slope that, um, uh, that the community has somewhat, I think it's kind of recovered a bit now, but at some point for me, it was getting really bad. Um, there's people giving advice. There's people doing podcasts, doing YouTube channels that have never shot film, you know, like, and isn't that scary? Like, you know, it's like they have no website, they have no portfolio to speak of. You know, like there's, you know, they're, they're not putting their work out there for peer review or even public review, uh, you know, and I really think if you're going to seek advice from anyone, I think the Ilford channel is an excellent resource. Mm. Absolutely. There are some legit folks, you know, Alex, Jess, um, uh, Lena Bessanova, uh, you know, these are people out there you know, doing it, Matt Mirage, you know, like these are people who have, you know, not just taken up photography as what, as a, as part of their living or a hobby or lifestyle or whatever. These are people that are in the deep end of the pool, you know, and they swam there so they can teach you how to swim there. You know, like I really think if you do yourself a favor don't seek advice from YouTube or, you know, Facebook pages and things like that. Send these folks an email, you know, and say, hey, I have a question. Maybe you could raise it on your podcast. This has been my experience. I don't I don't think you should put that question 
out in the public forum because that's just a fishing expedition. You know, you go fishing, sometimes you're going to catch, you know, a great big tuna. Sometimes you're going to catch a big fat sucker. So make sure you're not the sucker, basically. So anyway, I think uh, that's our kind of two cents on the anti-gas episode. What do you guys and, think? And and about, about asking questions, like if you have a question about um, something that someone has posted on a blog post or on a YouTube channel, ask a question in the comments. Good yeah. chance we're going to respond i i actually responded to two questions today that were published on my blog one about focusing um uh iconta folding camera and another one about using d76 to develop paper there you go i'm going to throw in one last thing um beware of people who say there's only one way to get a specific result you know it's like no you, you must use this film you must use that developer you must use that iteration of Hasselblad lens. Yeah. Uh, half the time, they're just trying to rationalize spending too much money themselves. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. I do think that we have to be really careful of where we get our advice from, too, because, you know, some of us do come from more privileged backgrounds and some of us don't. And sometimes that advice isn't really well given to the masses, say. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not advice that everyone can actually take. So you do have to kind of be careful and weed through it and make sure that the advice actually even just makes sense to you. Um, if you're completely starting out, it is hard to weed through what's good and what's not. Oh my goodness. I remember just going through forums, doing a Google search and trying to find an answer through forums and how many people would say one thing and so many people would say something else and just trying to figure out what was actually true for yourself. Um, but again, like everyone else has said, make friends in the community. Find people that you like, mm-hmm. you like their work, you like their personalities. They can back up what they're talking about because you know they have websites or they have portfolios or whatever. And it, you know, again, like Alex said, if they can't steer you in the right direction or give you the right answer, I mean, they will send you to someone who can. So, you know, you just have to kind of weed through all of that at the beginning. And then once you get into it, you kind of know who you can and can't trust. And, you know, you find yourself in a lovely part of the community at that point, hopefully. Sage advice, Jess. Absolutely. No, I try sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, if you think that's a wrap, you think we've uh, kind of finally done the bucket list on the first CCR anti-gas episode? No, no, so. there's there's going to be more to come, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, we we got to convince Bill to give up a few of those Nicormats. <laughs> oh, boy. I want. I don't think I want to be around his place that day. No, me neither. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Just the, just the look on his face right now. Yeah, I'm like, oh, good thing I'm in. Good thing I'm very far away from Bill right now. Turning green already, I think. <laughs> My gosh. I won't touch him. I swear. Anyway, thanks, guys. This is James Lee. Thanks for letting me sit in the moderator hot seat today. Um, all I've got to say is, uh, you know what? Be honest with the person that you see in the mirror, and uh, that'll translate to your photography. I'm Alex Lokes. Remember, a good photograph isn't the camera, it isn't the lens, it isn't the film. It's the photographer. It's your heart, it's your brain, it's your eyes. Oh, crap, Alex, you stole my... You stole (laughs) mine, mine too. (laughs) 
All right. Well, this is Jess Hobbs, and Alex just stole my wonderful ending. So thank you, Alex, for that. That was absolutely beautiful. Exactly what I would say. Just grab whatever camera you love to shoot with, no matter what it is, film, digital, your phone. No one's going to judge you. And if they do, then don't listen to them. Listen to the rest of us who absolutely love photography and will encourage you every step of the way. Go out there and have fun. Exactly. This is Bill Smith. Just keep it simple. It'll bring you joy. This is John Meadows desperately trying to come up with something on the fly. Um, I like what everyone else has said. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the joy does not come from the equipment. The joy comes from the results. Uh, the results are the destination. The uh, the gear is just a tool to get you there. Absolutely. Mm. I'll, I'll leave you with this one last thought that I think sums up the words you've all been looking for. Photography is taking what's between your ears sprinkling it with a little bit of what's in your chest and putting that into the box in your hands. So with that, get out there and shoot.